So today we're hanging out in John's Gospel, and that's pretty exciting because today is Pentecost. It's the day that we remember the pouring out of the Spirit, and we celebrate Jesus pouring his Spirit out upon his church to empower his church. Um, and John's Gospel is probably out of, out of the four Gospels, is the one that most emphasizes the Holy Spirit. Um, so yeah, great that we're hanging out in John's Gospel today. Let's read together John chapter 1, verses 1 down to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, we pray that today on this Sunday, as we celebrate and remember you pouring out your spirit on your church, we pray pour out your spirit again. Even now, Lord God, as we open up your word. By your spirit, bring it to life. Bring us to life. Empower us, we pray, and speak into our hearts today. Amen. Great. Um, I've been talking about how the Gospels have been um, showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament all the way through. He is that God revealed now. And John's Gospel is no exception. Uh, so I just want to jump straight in, okay, and show you where some of this stuff is. I'm going to geek out on this for a little bit. Um, so John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. I mean, this is Genesis language, isn't it? In the beginning, literally how the Bible begins. Um, and then we discover in the beginning was the Word. And, and this Word, well, go back to Genesis. What happens in the beginning God speaks he speaks there's his spoken word his action his word from his heart that overflows out of him and it brings creation into being and we read here that through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made Jesus is that word that was at the beginning that was in very it was very much God himself and the overflow of God into creation how incredible is that 
we also discover this light and darkness language that we get from Genesis. Now, I want to just talk a little bit about this. This links us nicely in fully into Genesis. You know that in Genesis, there were seven days of creation. And over John's uh, opening chapters, we discover these seven days. And I just want to show you them a moment to show you just not just literally in the words, but in the structure of the text as well, what John is doing and how he is opening up for us just who Jesus is and just how amazing what Jesus is doing is. So here we go. In the beginning, well, the the Genesis narrative starts like that. Day one, in the beginning. What happens on day one? Light and darkness are separated. What do we read here? That light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We've got day one, we've got light and darkness being separated. Jump down to verse 29 with me, and you'll read the words, the next day. Oh, so we've got another day. So the next day, day two, what happens on the day two in the creation narrative? Well, day two, God separates the waters above from the waters below. Well, here, as you read, we see John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is saying that he baptizes with water, but one is coming who baptizes with the Spirit. And so we get this water from below and water above language. The baptism from below, the baptism from above. Okay, verse 35, the next day. Okay, we've got another day. So we're on to day three now. What happens on day three of creation? Well, day three of creation it is the creation of the land. And so as we read through these next few verses, we discover here that that some disciples following John kind of go up to Jesus and, and they ask him, where are you staying? Like literally, where are you placing your feet? Where are you resting? It's land. Okay, so we've got land figuratively just demonstrated there in day three. Now, day four is a little bit more tricky to find, but I love the way that John does this because, again, it roots it definitely back in the Genesis narrative. So day four, you find day four happening in verse 39 in the second half. So we're getting to the end of day three, and it says, they spent that day with him, day three. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, cast your minds back to Genesis chapter one, and you will remember that in Genesis chapter one, we get this language. It was evening. It was morning. It was evening. It was morning. It was evening. It was morning. And and that happens at the end of each day. We get this language to say that was that day done, evening, then morning. And and basically that's because uh, that's how the Jewish days work. You see this If you know anything about the Jewish Sabbath, it starts at sunset Friday night and goes through to sunset Saturday. Um, And that's because the Genesis narrative moves us from darkness into light. The Jewish day begins at sunset and and then ends at sunset the next day. It goes from evening through to morning, from night through to day, from darkness through to light. And so here it was about four in the afternoon. What does that mean? Sunset's coming. It's the end of that day and we're into another day. So we're into day four. What happens on day four of the creation narrative? Well, on day four of the creation narrative, God puts the stars in the sky and he puts the greatest star to govern the day and the lesser star to govern the night or the greatest sign and the lesser sign. Um, And as we look down the next few verses, we discover then, hey, we found the Messiah. And then in brackets, it says, that is the Christ, the king, the big one. Okay. And then you keep reading and Jesus is talking to Peter um, and he says, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas. And then in brackets, it says, which when translated is Peter. Now we know from a couple of weeks ago that Peter in the Greek is Petros, it's little rock. So we've got the big rock and the little rock, the big sign and the little sign. So that's day four. Okay, verse 43. 
the next day. Okay, so we're on to another day now. Okay, day five. What happens on day five of creation? Day five of creation, we uh, get the creation of the birds in the air and the fish in the sea. And so as we read through these verses, following verse 43, we see that we get the disciples coming to Jesus. We've got Andrew, Philip, we've got Peter, and they're all from this town. And this town is a little, little fishing town, little fishing village. And, and, and what are they? They're all fishermen. So we've got fish on day five. Great. Okay, chapter two, verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place. And suddenly you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> this doesn't fit, Matt, because we just had day five and now you've got the third day. But quite literally in the Greek, that can be translated like this. On the third day of the wedding, which took place. So actually, we've got another day, which happens to be the third day of the wedding. And when you kind of start to understand that Jewish weddings at that time could last between five to seven days, you're like, oh, right, day three. And you're like, oh, we've got a story here about the wine running out. Have you ever thought that's ridiculous, the wine running out? But suddenly you think, oh, they're on the third day of the wedding. Yeah, okay, I can see the wine might be running out. So here we are on the third day of this wedding. Now, which is actually day six in John's creation narrative. What happens on day six of the creation narrative in Genesis? We get the creation of Adam and Eve, and we get the breathing of God's spirit, life into them, the first human couple. What's going on in chapter two, the third day of this wedding, day six of John's creation narrative? It is a wedding. (laughs) It's a marriage between a man and a woman, and we get this story about how the wine has run out, And so Jesus rocks up and he turns water into wine. And water and wine are both symbolic in in the scriptures for the Holy Spirit and the joy of life that God gives. And so here we've got Jesus, the creator himself, pouring out wine into this wedding, bringing life to this couple. How amazing is that? That's incredible, right? So after day six in the creation narrative, we get day seven. And day seven um, in the Genesis narrative, well, cast your mind back. I've mentioned already that the repeated line throughout the Genesis narrative is it was evening, it was morning, day one. It was evening, it was morning, day two. It was evening, it was morning, day three. We get that every single day until we get to the seventh day. And the seventh day never wraps up by saying it was evening, it was morning. Because in the seventh day of the creation narrative, God rested and he invites humanity into that rest, which is the seventh day, which is this ongoing, unending day of rest in the presence of God. At least that's what it was supposed to be. And so cast your eyes down now to verse 12 of chapter 2. It says this, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, with his family, with his people. Okay, he went with them, the God with his people. There they stayed for a few days. There they rested for unending days, for a number of days, just for this period of time that went on and on. I love that. Here we've got, in John's opening two chapters, the creation narrative. Why? Why is that there? Because John wants you to see that Jesus is Jesus of Genesis. He is the word that was in the beginning. And here he is bringing again new creation, new life. Here's a new chance to start again. God has come again to bring new life about, to recreate us, to recreate humanity. Cast your eyes down. Chapter 1, verse 12 
You see this, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What's going on there? Well, God, Jesus is literally calling us back into God's good creation. He's literally calling us back to be his children again, to be his image bearers. He's remaking us in the image of God. When Adam and Eve then had a child, it said that they created in their image they had a child. And, and so here Jesus is literally restoring the image of God in us as he restores creation through himself again. How incredible is this? How incredible is this? So we keep tracking down to verse 14. <clears throat> John has already told us that Jesus is the creator God. But he's not just that. He's more than that. And now he leads us from Genesis into Exodus. And so verse 14 says this, the word became flesh. Quite literally, the creator came into his creation. Okay, and we see this and we'll show you, I'll show you this in a moment. We see that he does this throughout the Old Testament. The creator comes into his creation. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now that word dwelling, quite literally in the Greek, means to, um, to spread out his tent. He spread out his tent among us. In the Hebrew, it's the word tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He set up his tent among us. Then it says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. So then we've got his tent and then his glory revealed. And it tells us that he was full of grace and truth. Now, come with me back to Exodus 33 and 34. I'm not going to be reading all of this, but I just want you to cast your eyes down. Exodus 33 verse 7. Now in my Bible, um, my home group are going to mock me for this. But in my Bible, there's a title above uh, Exodus 33, verse 7. Uh, and it says, the tent of meeting, literally the tabernacle. Okay, so we've got the tent of meeting set up. Then Exodus 33, verse 12. In my Bible, above verse 12, there's a title. It says, Moses and the glory of God. So we've got God's tent of meeting and we've got his glory revealed. And then keep tracking down to verse, that's sorry, chapter 34. Verse six, what's happening here is God shows up with Moses and he reveals himself to Moses and he passes Moses by and he declares his name. He says, this is who I am, Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord. He says, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. God gives this little speech, one of the only speeches in the whole Bible where he describes in his own words who he is. We've talked about this before, and I've talked about how uh, in Hebrew literature, the main point is right in the middle. And the middle of this little speech is this line, abounding in love and faithfulness. If you get your hands on a copy of the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament that Jesus would have had in his day, literally that line reads like this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, full of grace and truth, literally the language that John uses in John chapter one, literally that language. Um, so we've got God showing up in the tent of meeting, his glory revealed on the mountain, and he is the God full of grace and truth. Hesed we emet in the Hebrew. Those words are the same Greek and Hebrew. Um, and so what John is telling us here is that Jesus is the Jesus that's been showing up again and again and again throughout the scriptures. He's the God who's been always wanting to meet with his people. And here he is again wanting to meet with us. I love that story um, because God shows up 
at that time and says he's compassionate and gracious right after the Israelites have massively screwed up. He's invited them into relationship and straight away they've gone and worshipped the golden calf. Straight away they've messed up and turned away from him. And then he, Moses goes up the mountain and God says to Moses, I'm a compassionate and gracious God. I'm full of grace and truth. I'm abounding, overflowing with love and faithfulness. And so I'm going to give you these commands again. I'm going to give you this marriage covenant again. And here's a second chance. Here's forgiveness. Here's another go. And so John's showing us that Jesus is that Jesus, the Jesus of second chances, the Jesus of forgiveness, the Jesus of committed, loving, faithful covenant that he wants to make with us again and again and again. I love that. I love that. We get that in verses 16 and 17 where John says that in Jesus we're receiving grace in place of grace already given. You know, Jesus is the the grace and truth that's coming to replace the grace that was already given. We often... I think have quite a negative view of the Old Testament law. But here John's saying, no, that old law, that old covenant, which we know when we studied Exodus, we discovered was actually a marriage covenant. That's what it was. Actually, it's a covenant of love. It was grace that was already given and they messed it up. And so Jesus has come to bring grace in place of that grace already given. What an amazing God he is. What an amazing God he is. Okay. I've geeked out enough um, on the opening of John's gospel and hopefully you are seeing just how incredible John thinks Jesus is. He's a bringer of new creation, of new possibilities. He's the one who brings light into our darkness. He's the one who gives us the chance to be called children of God again, sons and daughters, to restore us as the image bearers of God, to bring us into relationship. And he's the one that gives chance after chance after chance, showing up to give us another chance to bring us into relationship again. How incredible is that? Um, I want us now just to hang out on this word grace. Uh, Grace in place of grace already given. What is grace? I want us to talk a little bit about grace because grace comes up a lot in the letters that we're going to get to soon. And grace is this really commonly used word in the Christian world. We talk about grace all the time. We sing about grace. Um, But I want to say that I think that we have maybe misunderstood grace a little bit. We've kind of caught something of what it's about, but we haven't caught the fullness of what it's about. And because of that, we've actually diminished grace and we've made it less than what it is. Um, In Galatians chapter four, verse four, and in Romans chapter five, verse six, it tells us that Jesus came at just the right time. At just the right time in history, Jesus came. And I believe that he came at the specific time that he did because, because the words that he chose to use and the actions that he played out before our very eyes, those things, they made sense in that time uh, of what it was that he wanted to communicate to us. Now we can read the stuff that he did and said, and we can understand it in our context from our point of view. But unless we try to understand what it meant then, we will miss the fullness and the depth uh, and the greatness of just what Jesus was trying to say and what he was trying to do. And so what I want us to do now is take a little journey as we explore this word grace that John has used in his gospel, that God uses to, to talk, to refer to himself. Um, and I want us to ask, what did it mean then? And how can that show us just something that we've missed about how incredible the grace of God is? So 
Let's just start off by talking about what we think about when we talk about grace. We, we often talk about grace as a gift, don't we? Grace is a gift. It's freely given to us. And I think that's great because it is. Grace is a gift. It is freely given to us. It is freely offered to us. Let's just talk about gifts, okay? If I give you a gift, you can take that gift and you can do whatever you want with it. You can use it as it's meant to be used. You can destroy it. You can pass it on to someone else. You can use it for something completely random in a different way. You can pop it on a shelf or you can put it in a box, never think about it. Whatever you want is yours, isn't it? I've given you a gift. End of story. That's it. That's the end of it. It's yours. You've been given it. You've been blessed by it. Fantastic. In fact, I could give you that gift and then you could never speak to me again. You could go off and do whatever you wanted, and I've got no right to ask for it back because it's yours. I gave it to you. It's your gift. And so you could, you could do whatever you wanted with it, even out of relationship with me. Do you know what? Is that really what we think God's gift of grace is? Because that doesn't add up for me. You know, God doesn't just give us a gift and say, I'm giving you all this stuff. Now it's yours. Go do what you want. And you don't even have to worry about me anymore. Like you can even hate on me, forget about me, walk away from me. But you've got that gift and it's yours. Bless you. Off you go. Because I think that's how we treat God sometimes today. But I don't think that's the fullness of it. And I think if we think that that's what grace is, if we think that God gives us this gift and we can do what the hell we like, treat it as we like, and it's ours and we've been given it. I think we actually cheapen the grace that God has given us and we even diminish just how amazing he is. Because we actually say in that that God doesn't care. If we say that God's given us this and now it's ours, I can do what I want with it, then we're actually saying, well, God doesn't really care about us. He's like some absent father who just showers us from a distance with gifts but doesn't really care. And that's not the God of the Bible. That's not who he is. And so actually grace must mean more than that. It must. So a little bit of history about grace and gift for you. Um, in any other culture other than our modern Western culture, gifts were never thought of like I just explained. If you check out Eastern culture or ancient cultures, you will discover that if someone gives you a gift, they freely give the gift to you. They're not required to give it to you. It's freely given. but You don't freely receive it. If someone gives you a gift, then you are then expected to give back to them in any other culture other than our modern Western culture. If someone gives you a gift, you are then, if you receive that gift, you are then indebted to that person. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first got my head around that, I was like, whoa, hang on a second. That is not right. That offends us, doesn't it? That offends us. Because we're just like, no way. If someone gives me a gift, I should be able to do what I like with it. Like, I, I shouldn't be indebted to them. And, and we're offended by that. Um, I want to just little side note, I just want to say this to you here. The gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive. If, well, I think that often we think it's offensive to people out there, don't we? But not to us. But I want to say this to you. If you have not been offended by the gospel, if the truth of who Jesus is and his teaching and his way and the scriptures don't challenge your life and slightly offend you, then I want to suggest to you today that you probably haven't encountered or fully embraced the fullness of the gospel of Jesus. You may have embraced a completely separate gospel or you may have embraced a watered down version of the gospel of Jesus. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter who you are, if you fully embrace the gospel of Jesus, it will offend you. It will challenge things in our lives. Yeah, little side note there. But um, this idea of gift, 
gift, it offends us that we should owe. And so I think maybe the word gift isn't the best word for us to use when we're talking about grace. Now, some of the old um, translations of the Bible um, will often translate the word hesed, which we can translate as gift. Uh, They'll also translate it as favor. And I think that's maybe a better word for us to use when we're thinking about grace rather than gift is favor. Because if I do a favor for you, I freely give myself to do that for you. But then even in our uh, cultural context, when a favor is done, often a favor is returned, isn't it? So uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Favor for a favor. And so maybe favor is a better way of thinking about grace than gift. I want to unpack that uh, a a little bit with you. Um, Jump with me to uh, Genesis chapter 39, verse 4. We're just going to read... This together is uh, the story of Joseph, uh, who at this point in his life has been brought into Potiphar's house. So chapter 39 of Genesis, verse 4, says this. Joseph found favor in his eyes. That's the eyes of Potiphar, his master. Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. So uh, what we see here is Uh, Joseph finding favor in the eyes of his master. Uh, So firstly, this is the word hesed, okay? The same word grace, okay, translated favor. Um, Now favor, just side note here, was always given from hesed, grace was always given from someone uh, of uh, greater status to someone of lesser status. Someone of lesser status could find favor in the eyes of someone of greater status, but then they gave that favor from the greater thing. And so I, I love that because if God is the one giving us favor, us grace, then that just says something, doesn't it? He is the greater one. We're the lesser one. We're the ones that need him. And yet he gives to us. I love that. But hey, back to this. Um, So Joseph found favor in his eyes. And Potiphar gave favor to Joseph. And he raised him up. He freely lifted him and said, hey, I'm giving you the chance to become the head of my household, my personal attendant. I'm raising you up. I'm bestowing on you this favor and lifting you up. But then what happened is, is that Joseph then had responsibility with his new elevated position because of the favor that was put upon him. He had responsibility. He had responsibility over those other servants now. He had responsibility towards Potiphar. He owed Potiphar for this great favor that had been bestowed upon him and he needed to live up to the expectation that had been put upon him. No longer could Joseph just be what he was before. He had to lay all that down, and now he had to step up into this new elevated responsibility. It was costly for that favor to be bestowed upon him. It was costly for him. And John also mentions, in John chapter 1, we've said already, he also mentions Exodus 33 and 34. And I love that as well, because that's a story, like John said, of grace already being given. It's a story of favor already being bestowed. In that story, the Israelites, they were captives in Egypt, and they cried out, and they found favor in the eyes of the Lord. They found favor, hesed, grace, love in the eyes of God. And so God set them free. He freely came to them and he, he fought for them and he brought them out and he brought them into new relationship. And he said to them, I will be your father. I'll be your king and you can be my people. And I'm going to give you all of me. I'm going to give you all of me. I've bestowed upon you this favor and I will make you my sons and daughters. 
But if you want to receive me, if you want to receive all that I'm giving, then God said there's responsibility in being my sons and daughters. There's a covenant we need to make. And so he gives them the Ten Commandments because there's responsibility for them if they accept that position as his sons and daughters. I will give you this promised land. I will make you a great nation. I will do all these things for you. Freely I give this to you. But if you want it, then there's a way to live to have it. If you want me, then I want all of you. You can have no other gods before me. And you must live this way to honour me. And you must treat each other like this in order to honour me. Because you are all made in my image. And so there's, there's a responsibility. There's, there's, a, there's a cost. They had to lay down all their other gods. They had to lay down all their old ways. They had to lay down all their old customs and let go completely of it in order to embrace what God wanted to give them. And that's the same for us. In verse 12 of chapter 1 of John, it says this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So he freely gives He freely gives to us the right to become children of God. You can have this. You can be mine. You can bear my image. You can know all that I want to give you. The life and the hope that I want you to step into is all yours. He gave the right to become the children of God. There's a shift there. They have to become something. We have to become something. We have to leave behind our old ways and become the children of God. He's offering it to us. Do we want to step into it? Do you want all that he's pouring out today? You have a choice to make. Do you want to step into that? If we accept that, if we accept his offer and we become children of God, then suddenly we live in his house. We live under his rule. We live with him as our father and his word is final. We live his way. If we choose Jesus, Paul says this, he says, I've become a slave to Jesus, a slave to Christ. If we choose him, we lay everything else down and we become bonded to him. We become bonded to him. And it's incredible because we get all the amazing stuff that comes with that. But there is such a huge cost to laying all that other stuff down. He's given all of himself. But in return, if you want what he's giving, then you need to give all of you to him as well. You need to give all of you to him as well. What that means is that we lay down our rights We don't have rights anymore. It's such a theme in this world today, isn't it? It's my right to this, my right to that, my right to believe, to feel, to have, to do, my right. But when we become children of God, we lay down our rights. You no longer have the right to say whatever you want, to speak however you want, to complain about whatever you want. Because now we are called with our lips to honour him. We are called with our words to speak blessing into the world. We're called to live his way. If we are to become his children, we need to live as his children. We need to live up to that responsibility, that status that he bestows upon us. You no longer have a right to hold anything against anyone because we are called to be those who forgive again and again and again and again and again and again every single time because we have been forgiven much. We too should forgive. You no longer have the right to sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want and do whatever you want because if you accept the offer of grace to become his, then no longer is your body your own. Because as he has given you all of him, you need to give all of you to him. That includes your physical body. 
you honor him with your body. If, if we accept that, that grace, that offer to become his children, we have no rights anymore. No rights to anything at all. We are his and we live his way. It is incredibly costly to become uh, the children of God, to receive the grace that Jesus pours out. And it will involve us laying everything down, everything down. You know, the story of the rich young ruler, I love this guy. I think he gets a lot of uh, bad press. But the story of the rich young ruler, he, he genuinely comes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like he desperately wanted what Jesus was offering. He, he absolutely wanted it. And Jesus said, great. Well, you need to just keep this command and this command and this command. You need to live like this, live worthy of it. And the, and the rich young ruler, he says, I've done all these things since I was a child. My whole life I have dedicated to doing these things. And Jesus says, great. There is one thing. There is one thing that you still hold on to more tightly than what I am offering. And for this particular person, that was wealth. For you, for me, for others, it might be something different. But for this guy, it was his money. And so Jesus said to him, go and sell everything you have and give it away. And then come and follow me. Because you cannot follow Jesus and hold on to things from the world. Because we cannot fully embrace the gift that he gives us. What we're still holding on tightly to other things. I wonder what that is for you. I wonder what that is for us. What's that one thing that we're still holding tightly to? Because if we really want all that Jesus has, we need to lay it down. It will cost you everything to follow Jesus. It will cost you everything to follow Jesus. You know, Jesus, he says, if you want to come after me, take up your cross and die to yourself. You cannot hold on to the way of the world. You cannot hold on to your reputation and all that you've built up. You cannot hold on to any of that stuff more tightly than you hold on to Jesus. If you really want what Jesus has to offer, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have nothing in your life that is more important than me. Nothing in your life. We have no rights anymore if we choose Jesus. But what we do get is the incredible life that he offers. The hope and the peace and the light in our darkness. We get reborn as sons and daughters of God. We get all of that, all of that forgiven every time we mess it up. All our shame and guilt dealt with. We get such an incredible gift given to us. But we can't have it if we're holding on to other things. I want us to just jump now to John chapter 3. I want us to look at the story of this guy who, um, who comes to Jesus um, and Jesus responds to him about this stuff. Let's just, let's just talk about this. Let's read chapter 3 verses 1 to 3. They say this. Now there was a, a Pharisee. Now just hold on to the fact that this guy was a Pharisee. So, so he, he's not a bad guy. He's a guy that is pursuing to do the right things. He so wants what God is bringing that he's pursuing it and chasing after it. So this is who he is. He, he wants that stuff. A bit like the rich young ruler, desperate for the things of God. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with them. And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always thought a little bit like, 
wow, Jesus, that's a bit of a blunt response. This guy comes to you and he honors you and he says, yeah, we see that you're from God and you're a good teacher. And you just come back with, boom, let me tell you that no one enters the kingdom of God. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. You think, wow, that's blunt. Like, he wasn't even asking you about all of that stuff. What's going on there? And, and I always used to ponder that uh, until I cottoned on to a little bit of the wordplay that's going on in the Greek. And uh, what's going on there is this. Um, he comes to Jesus. And he says, Rabbi, we know. In Greek, that's the word idu. And it literally means see. We see. We perceive. We see. Rabbi, we see. We idu. That you are a teacher who has come from God. Now check out Jesus' response. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus uses a different word though. Jesus uses the word horo. And that again means literally to see or perceive, but there is a difference. See, it do means to see physically with my eyes. Horo, it means to see in my mind or perceive in my spirit. And so there's this thing going on where Nicodemus has come to him and said, Rabbi, we see that you are this. And Jesus just turns around and says, Nicodemus, you haven't seen anything because you are looking with the wrong eye. You are looking to understand in the wrong way. You are missing what is going on right in front of you. As long as you keep looking with your earthly eyes, you won't see anything. And, and check that out because Nicodemus is like, you're a good teacher and you're doing all these signs and we love your teaching and the miracles that you're doing. And, and I love the fact that actually John even calls the miracle signs throughout his gospel. If you, you, you track that, you'll notice that he calls them signs. Because what he's saying is this. He's saying, literally, the miracles aren't a thing in themselves. We can get so caught up on the actual teaching or the way of Jesus or the miracles he does. But they're not actually the thing. They are a sign. And a sign points to something even bigger, even greater. And as long as you're just looking at the thing, you're going to miss what it's pointing to. You know, you don't drive down the motorway and go, oh, look, sign for Bristol. Great, let's just stop here and have our picnic. That's not Bristol. You have to keep going until you get there. Signs point to something else. But Nicodemus had stopped at the sign. We've seen this. And Jesus is saying, you're not going to see anything until you see it through the Spirit. Until you see it through the Spirit. You're being invited to see so much more than what you're seeing. You won't see it as long as you keep trying to understand it from your earthly point of view, from your worldly point of view, from your own position. It's not going to make sense to you. You need to invite the spirit in. Let's keep reading verse four. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. And I, I love this because Nicodemus does what we do and what the world does. Straight away, Jesus has said something. It slightly offended him like, ouch. And Nicodemus is like, whoa, hang on. Let me just give you my excuses. Like, logically, this just doesn't make sense. How can someone be born when they're old, you know? And it's a bit like what the world does, like what we do when the scriptures challenge us or offend us. We're like, no, 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 no. That was written thousands of years ago. Can't possibly understand what I'm going through right now. This is my reality. Literally, Nicodemus, I'm already old. I can't be born. This is my reality. I can't, that can't happen. And he gives an excuse. And we do that. We do that. I want to challenge you today, church. What excuses are you giving Jesus when he challenges you? What excuses are you giving him? Let, let's keep going because literally Nicodemus does this awesome thing that we do as well and the world does as well when, when Jesus challenges us. Um, we've given our excuse, but then before we let Jesus speak, and I want to challenge you today, give Jesus space to speak. But before we let Jesus speak, we do this other thing where we deflect, right? I've given you my excuse. Now, before you can speak into that, I'm going to deflect and I'm going to mock what you've said. And, and he does that. He's like, 
Oh, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Like, how ridiculous is that, Jesus? Like, literally, how ridiculous is your teaching? You ever feel like that? People are like, seriously, you're a Christian. How ridiculous. Do you really believe the Old Testament? Do you really believe that stuff? Really? Like, no, come on, we've got science and modern thinking and all these kind of things. Like, what are you playing at? Like, nah. But they try and deflect. And I just, I love the response of Jesus here, right? Because he literally just, he comes back and he's just really blunt. He's just really blunt. And he just says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Basically, he comes back to Nicodemus and he's just like, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to get caught up in, in your deflecting and your mocking and your excuses. I'm just telling you straight, this is how it is. Because I, I want you to know this. I want you to have this. I'm just telling you that you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of the Spirit. And, and quite literally in, in the Greek, that can be translated like this. And you might even see a little letter next to the words um, born again, uh, born of the Spirit, uh, telling you that that could be translated as born from above. And so we get this language of being born from below or born from above. We get this language of, of how, are you, how are you looking at this? Are you trying to understand it from here or are you trying to understand it from here? The only way you're going to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing and what he's inviting you into is if you lay down everything else that you think. If you lay down your way, your way of doing it, like this guy's a Pharisee, like he's trying to do it right. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Lay all of that down, give up all of that stuff and open yourself up to the spirit. Open yourself up to all that I have for you. I want to pour my spirit into you. I want you to, um, to have all that I have for you. I want you to have all of that. But you're not going to unless you lay all of this stuff down. It's going to cost you. You need to stop trying to understand it from your own point of view. Stop trying to make it make sense and fit into your own little box. You need to blow the boxes. You need to push them aside. Give up everything that you think is your way, your right, your understanding. And you need to push it all aside and say, I haven't got a clue. I know that what you're offering me is so amazing, God. So amazing. And so I'm just giving you myself. I'm ready. I'm willing to be born again. I'm willing to receive your spirit. I'm willing to be made new. I'm willing to be called a child of God. I'm willing to have your light shine into my darkness. I'm willing. And so I lay it all down. I give it all up. It's costly to do that, but it is so, so worth it. So worth it. It, it keeps going. Um, we get to that famous verse, don't we? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do, do you know, it's, it's there, isn't it? For God so loved the world grace that he gave, he gift, he offered freely. I so love the world that I'm giving them my son. That whosoever believes, and we know from John chapter 1, verse 12, that to believe is to receive, okay? That whosoever received, whoever believed in him, would not perish. So here's this free gift. Are you going to receive it? Because it's going to cost you everything. You have to put all your hope in it. You can't put a bit of hope here in finance, a bit of hope here in my job, a bit of hope here in this relationship, a bit of hope here in my reputation, a bit of hope, whatever it is. You can't put a bit of hope here and a bit of hope here and a bit in Jesus. You need to put it all in him. Be absolutely persuaded and convinced of who he is and put it all in him. 
Whosoever believes will inherit this. I've got such amazing things for you. New creation that I'm inviting you into. Light that I want to pour out into your darkness. You know, I, I want to make you a son and daughter again. Pour out my spirit on you that you might bear my image. I want to lift you up to that elevated place. I want to give you second and third and fourth chances. I want to pour out forgiveness on you and do away with your sin and your shame and your guilt. I want to set you free. I want to love you and I want you to have all of me. That is what God is saying to us today. The question is, are you willing to give him all of you to embrace all that he has for you? Um, Yeah, it's, it's difficult actually harder than we think verse 19 of chapter 3 says this is the verdict light has come into the world but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil verse 20 everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed you know people don't want to step into what God has because there's a fear that we'll lose everything, that everything I've held on to will be exposed and be nothing anymore, that who I am will be exposed, that who I've built myself up to be will be shown actually to be nothing. And there's that fear, there's that cost to stepping into that. But I want to tell you this today, church, if you are still holding on to something of the kingdom of darkness, however small that is, in whatever tiny corner of your heart that is, whatever you're holding on to, whatever of this world that you're still putting your hope in, I want to tell you today, don't be afraid, just believe. That's what Jesus said, we read about last week, didn't we? Don't be afraid, just believe. Put all your hope in him. It is worth the cost. It is worth the cost. What he offers us is so amazing. Life in all of its fullness is so amazing. But it's going to cost you everything. Are you willing today to lay it all down, to give up everything that you've ever known, everything that you've ever put your hope in, everything that you've ever pinned your life upon, and say, only you, Jesus. Only you, Jesus. To those who received him, to those who believed, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for that gift that you give. Thank you, God, that that gift is more than just a thing. It is you yourself. You are giving us all of who you are. Praise you, God, for that. Thank you, God. Forgive us, Father, when we make excuses. Forgive us when we deflect, when your word challenges us. And I pray, pour out your spirit upon us today. Upon this Pentecost Sunday, pour out your spirit again, God. Pour life into us. And I pray, God, convict us. Convict us of the things that are wrong in our lives. Show us, God, the things of the world that we're still holding on to. Show us, Father, the things that we have held as higher, of, uh, have higher importance and worth and value than we have held you. Show us those things. Challenge us, God, on that. That we might give that stuff up. And we might take up our cross and die to ourselves, And fully embrace and walk into the gift that you are giving us. The hope of life. The hope of freedom, the hope of redemption, the hope of forgiveness. God, pour out your spirit even now. Even now. I want to invite you, church, wherever you are right now, let's just wait on his spirit. Maybe you want to hold out your hands. Just invite him in. Pour your spirit out, God. Pour your spirit.